this is UCD Business Impact, a podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. And each week, we'll be joined by world-renowned academics from across the College of Business, as well as industry leaders, to discuss the most compelling business issues facing Ireland and the world. Our experts each week will offer insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist, and lecturer at New City College of Business. Now, after almost two years of the pandemic, I think we've all pretty much got the closest relationship we've ever had with our shopkeeper and a hell of a lot of admiration for those who work in those retail spaces. From Amazon to the local bookshop, there's arguably never been a period when that link has been closer. But where is the retail sector going long term once this crisis finally abates? And what do you make of all these incessant headlines we hear about supply chain issues, petrol shortages, of course, staff shortages and price inflation? Never has the retail space been so crowded and so noisy. So my guest today is the perfect person to help us turn down some of that noise and look at the issues in depth. She's probably also one of the most recognised and experienced women retailers there is out there. That recognition is built on a 37-year career at Pennies and Premark, where she was a board director for very many years and a leading driving force in the company. And that guest is Breege O'Donoghue. You're very welcome to the programme, Breege. Thank you, Emmett. I should also mention that the number of directorships you've held in other places and in other industries, uh, including on Post, Arenta, you've been the chairwoman of the Labour Relations Commission. You've also worked at CNC and IBEC, and you're a very busy woman, I know. You even say that on your LinkedIn, so we're very delighted that you've uh, you've come on the, the podcast today. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Breeze, if I wanted to kick off, um, we're going to be talking a lot in this conversation about changes in the retail space, um, the ones you've noticed over the length of your career. Um, could I go right back, though, to, to the sort of the start of your career and how you got into retail in the first place? And was it something that you set out to do? No, I don't think it really was. I had spent 17 years in the hospitality business and including in the early stages that I had spent three years of that in Switzerland and Germany. And that, you know, opened, I suppose, the wider world for me at that particular stage. I also worked in Northern Ireland in the hospitality industry during the troubled times. However, after 17 years in uh, the hospitality, I met with Arthur Ryan and he invited me to join retail, which, of course, there were many close resemblances to the hospitality business. And that's how I found myself in October 79 in Penny's Premark. If we look at retail today, retail, of course, has to be competitive Many, many changes for the future. Artificial intelligence is hugely important. The retailer needs to have deep customer insights, need to be able to plan with predictive data. Personalization is huge. You can see in one of our lovely stores here that painted runners to match their dresses are the new thing. Understanding the customer journey, you know, the messaging you know, between the customer and the staff. I think we will see, you know, virtual fitting rooms. We will see virtual mannequins. We will see showroom models where you'll scan the QR code and perhaps the item will be taken to the changing room. You fit it and you pay. I expect we're going to see interactive storefront windows, labels, you know, with the, on the shelves with a carbon footprint. And I think all retailers have to be very concerned about how they use customer data Trust is going is a big thing. 
smart shopping today and going forward is hugely important where you research, compare the prices, the specifications, the product reviews. But all in all, I think, and particularly following COVID, we will expect to see the front of house very serene, the back of house for all support. Space will be a service. They'll have to be reimagining faster delivery, more convenience, experience, theater, hugely important, innovation, adventure will make the brands. And at the same time, in a physical sense, we expect to see the lights, the fixtures, the environment, the present of a store, merchandising to make it an exciting place to visit. And at the same time, have integration of technology with the physical store. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. A lot of the things that you've mentioned are the experience that they are physically going into the store. So I'm taking from your answer that you think the physical store will still remain absolutely pivotal for decades ahead. I think bricks and mortars are really important. You'll be familiar with the title Ropo, research online and, and purchase in the store. I think bricks and mortar, they're good places for business. They're social places. They're places where people congregate. And of course, they create jobs. But I think in, in also, you know, in purchasing decisions, values and sustainability will be front of mind. You know, we will all be concerned to protect the environment, to drive the brand loyalty. We'll be concerned about production, its impact on the people, on the environment and raw materials and packaging practices. And indeed on the transport and the disposable. So one might be looking at the circular business model. Renewable clean energy, very significant in terms of solar and wind. You know, with the impact of the pandemic, we're much more conscious, I think, of climate change. So in shopping, we're going to see more upcycling, more recycling. Worn and wear will be themes, I think, that we will all be pretty well familiar with. Now, the company you've been associated with so many decades, as you say, you worked with the legendary Arthur Ryan, who passed away, unfortunately, a few years ago. And he was a huge loss to the retail scene here in Ireland, but also overseas. Extraordinary personal story he has. And we might be able to get into that a little bit later on. But what the company, of course, is associated with has been very cost conscious, very competitive pricing strategy and structure over the years. I mean, you've really kind of become... Uh, you know, people study the, the, the pennies and pre-mark model and some of them have tried to emulate it, not necessarily with much success. How important do you think pricing is going to be in this future that you see? Or is it going to be less important or do you think it'll always be kind of front and centre? I think remaining competitive is the key thing. It's about giving value for money. And, you know, in, in, in terms of Primark, leadership in every market is really quite significant. You know, in terms of the... Primark model. It is it is a volume model. It orders obviously in large volumes, often providing long lead times to suppliers to enable them to a plan and achieve efficiencies of scale, such as ordering in bulk. Primark orders the majority of its products directly from the supplier, who source raw materials close to where the merchandise is being manufactured wherever possible. So long-standing relationships are important. And as is, of course, in terms of Primark, there's a mandatory code of conduct for the suppliers. Investing in state-of-art logistics with highly developed sourcing methods. No advertising except for new stores and existing in new countries, but always and always tireless promotion on social media. And in terms of Primark has a high percentage of its merchandise 
available to view in across all the countries in the in the local language. But going forward, higher standards of ethical business at the heart of all Primark does is really important. And it's always regularly tested products at various stages of production. And of course, like many other fashion brands, majority of its products are made in developing countries, sharing facilities with 98% of high street brand. You've mentioned cost. Of course, keeping costs to a minimum is really important in this model. Paranoid about the costings. Also, flexibility to be able to respond to competition, to new trends, to market changes. And I know what's, what was, what is, and continues to be important is blending the best of know-how with culture. Price will be there, but it's also, it's really remaining, remaining competitive in the marketplace. And Bernice, do you think the, do you think there will be a tough job for whoever is running Primark and Pennies over the next few years to to kind of keep that balance between those socially conscious consumers that, that you mentioned that are very much watching ethical supply chains? Will it be hard to keep them happy with everything the company is doing while also sourcing, you know, at low cost in, in the developing world, as you say? Can you keep both of those parts of the equation in some kind of balance, do you think? Well, I, I'm, I'm conscious of an interview Paul Marchand, the CEO of Primark, recently gave, and he talked about how we have to design product for the future to ensure that that might be the case. You know, in other words, whether the genes might be free from rivets, whether we expect clothes to last longer in terms of durability. Carbon footprint is obviously important. You know, pursuing a living wage in the longer term for those who work in the supply chain is important. So I think that it's a question of doing the right thing, understanding what your brand is, what it stands for, and having values and say sustainability at front of mind here to stay. And Bree, just a, a small uh, side avenue to discuss is that Pennies, obviously, our, our listeners who are Irish and based in Ireland will know that as the brand. And then those who live outside Ireland will know Primark. Can you give just a little history lesson on why you went with the two different brand names? Or was it just something that happened kind of almost uh, without being thought that much about? Oh, Pennies was the was obviously established in Ireland in 1969. Some years thereafter, J.C. Pennies in the States wasn't very keen for pennies to be in Scotland. So a deal was done that pennies would remain the brand in Ireland and anywhere else throughout the world it would be Primark. That's how that originated. Yeah, okay. Because um, it, it, it's certainly a brand, both of them are very powerful, you know, in their individual markets that they're in. The other thing that I was going to ask you about, you're talking about consumers now and what they, you know, what they sound like and what they think and, and how they behave and so on. And how different do you think the consumer that you would see on the floor of a Primark today is from the consumer you would have encountered when you started your career? Or do you think there's sort of a connection or there's there's similarities ultimately? Or, or do you think they're kind of radically different people who are walking through a pre-mark store today than they were back in the 70s or 80s? I think the consumer today is still looking for value for money. But I really think they're looking for, you know, that they've obviously moved on. The world has moved on in terms of communication. Uh, you know, our consumers can see exactly what was in the catwalk and in New York last night. So from that point of view, the consumers are more educated about the trends. But today, I think the customer is all powerful in the global digital world. I think innovation, new product development, differentiation, sustainability are really important. I think also today, the consumer wants choice, cost, convenience, quality, transparency. 
you know, and they want platforms to be there for discovery, engagement, theatre, experience. And they expect businesses to have authentic leadership. And for that, business have got to be agile. Business have got to have vision, constantly innovate, to invest in newness, as well as, of course, the culture of collaboration is hugely important and the world is a smaller place. Contributing to community in today's world is important. Supporting the protection of the environment and technology, of course, the pace of technology and its disruptive capability requires a relentless focus in leveraging technology to add value and drive efficiencies. And Breach, have you been have you been surprised at the amount of famous names, like really, really prestigious names that have, have left the retail scene in the last two to three years? Like the when you actually is for a previous um podcast we did with um Damien McLaughlin here at the business school in UCD, I actually read out a list of the famous names that had exited out of the industry. And I was I was literally reading it out for about two minutes. Um, such was the, the number of them. Has that been a surprise to you or, or, do you or do you think it was inevitable or do you think there's something that links a lot of these companies? Well, I mean, obviously your company, the Jurassic has been doing exceptionally well, but were you surprised at the level of casualties in, say, the last two to three years? I mean, is there anything there that you would sort of identify as, the reason they've all left are, are they all just individual kind of stories? Primark went into the retail UK business in the 70s. It was a highly competitive market. Players had to compete aggressively for suitable high street location. And Primark's, you know, real challenge was you know, finding stores by selection, selection and targeting the right locations. But they have to say, you know, there were seven brands blue chip in the high street, and they're no longer there now. In fact, I'd say Primark expanded with the assist of some of those brands in total or in or in part, you know, and so far as it, you know, took over a one-up chain around London. And this, of course, gave it the benefits of this acquisition, increased profitability, market share, economies of scale, greater purchasing power. The same way it took over Littlewoods in the early 2000s, 141 stores. So one has to say that insufficient investments, perhaps not moving on with the times, not enough innovation, not a new, not enough new product, not really taking on board of the change of what the consumer consumer wanted, and not taking on board about the digital transformation that was coming down the line. And of course. Bricks and mortar are a tough business, tough business still today. If you're concerned about servicing the debt, the rent and rates, we talk about, you know, what's happened to the town centres. And I think we've been much more conscious that we've got to pump the local economies. We've got to dial up the welcome. So I'm sure some of these are the things that, you know, these businesses had not foreseen and not invested on in times gone by. Yes, and, and, and we've almost become, I suppose, used to the main department stores at least, being on the premier retail spaces, whether that's being on Oxford Street or Grafton Street or in Manhattan, in Fifth Avenue. We've kind of become used to them all being located there and paying those top rents. I mean, is that sustainable, you know, if you, if you don't have as many people visiting the store physically as, as you used to? Do you have to go and look at different physical locations with lower rent obligations? You mentioned Oxford Street. Topshop and others had wonderful locations in the middle of that great shopping environment, one time one of the best streets in Europe. 
And now IKEA is moving there. So that's quite a change. And I know from my experience in going into the US, it wasn't really one country. It was a patchwork of different markets. They had different tastes, competitive dynamics, different weather, value perceptions in the US, not driven by price alone, but there are functional bargains, couponing and discounting. You know, so in a sense, going into new markets, you have all of these challenges, which I saw enormously in Primark when we were beginning to expand internationally. It was a challenge in terms of culture. You know, I could say in the earlier days, we were either located in Ireland or the UK. And passing messages implicitly was frequently the norm. In many cases, we communicate in shorthand without realizing it, reading our colleagues' tone of voice. In the new countries we went into, we had to invest and ensure we applied some ground rules very carefully, adapting to the Primark culture, but without losing Primark's key strengths. Uh, so change was very often in Primark the new normal and managing that change and ensuring also that employees were part of that process. And part of that of being successful in new markets was all of us, we had to own our own problems. We had to move beyond our comfort zone. We had to work in these countries with the educators, the authorities, the local organizations, including the chambers of commerce, the Irish embassies, to maximize the benefits and at the same time, making a, a, a contributing hopefully to a better society. So, you know, investing, managing new ways of, of doing business, keeping up with the trend, and building a proposition which always, you know, which a differentiation and which had a competitive advantage. And Breeze, you've, you've worked with some incredible personalities, some of the most important figures in Irish retail, uh, two that I would certainly mention, Arthur Ryan, who you worked with for many decades, and also Galen Weston, who also um, passed away quite recently, another absolutely huge looming figure in the retail sector here in Ireland. Can you tell me a little bit about working with those two and just give our listeners some idea of what they were like and how important their contribution was? I put them both in the same basket. They believed in the magic of business. They valued the customers. They also saw as leaders, and they were leaders, that you had to be an enabler, coach, and you had to have your vision for the organisation and how to manage that change, but also deal with the realities of here and now, making decisions, leading by example, taking some complex problems and translating them into solutions. And I think they both had, they had wisdom, courage, prudence, but they were humble and modest men in every sense of the word. They did model good behavior. They did, above all, understand the customer. And they sought through the years to improve customer experience, whatever that might be. They valued the communities. You know, they knew what was success. They knew what was failure. And indeed, I'd say both would say would have accepted failure as part of a journey. The reason I ask you about the two of them is they didn't do many interviews. Certainly Arthur Ryan, I don't think he actually did a single interview that I'm aware of in his career. So out the outside world, those of us who, who weren't in the company, uh, Penny's Premark, don't know much about them. So that's, that's hence my question. Can you give us some idea of just the, the, their individual personalities or what, what if we had encountered them on a podcast like this, what kind of people would we, uh, 
would we have encountered? Well, Arthur was a fantastic character. It was really great fun to be around in every aspect of business. He was entertaining, he was interesting, and he had a fertile mind. But fun was always part, you know, part and parcel. I can tell you in the late 70s, I was at one of my first meetings with him, meeting senior people in London at 7.30 in the morning, staying in a nice hotel, ready for breakfast. And it was a time when you put your shoes outside the door. No. <laughs> God, we don't do that now, thank goodness. No, arrogance. <laughs> However, when I got out in the morning, I had no shoes. So I went to my meeting, didn't bat an eyelid, wearing my bedroom slippers from the hotel, right? Did the meeting, nothing more than that. Sometime later, I discovered that he'd arranged to take my shoes away and hide them. <laughs> you know, so that was, and maybe that was a test to see what... What I was like, you know, that was a bit of a test. How long did he leave you without telling you that? Oh, it went down for a number of days. I didn't bat an eyelid, you know, I just go off and buy another pair of shoes to get home. Galen was also quite a character. He worked extremely hard. The youngest of nine children came to Northern Ireland, behest of his father to learn his trade, then came down in the south. And of course, met and married a lovely Irish woman, Hilary, and they have two Irish twins, both now very successful in their own right. He had a great love of Ireland. Ireland was very much in his heart. His time that he lived here, his children were born here. Uh, he, he liked the culture. He allowed people kind of to stand out. And taking care of people was quite important to him. His thing would be, if I look after the people, they will look after my business. And Breeze, one of the things that always intrigues me about you because you've had such a stellar career is, is your longevity at the top. You know, you've had a, a very senior role Lots of other executives, male and female, have come and gone in the time that you've been there. I mean, is there anything you would say about keeping up in business and staying at the level you're at, keeping your performance, keeping your energy levels going? I mean, what, what, what's the secret of that from, from your perspective? I think one's real values and one's reputation. Continue to do the right thing. There are no mistakes, they're just learning. So you learn from your mistakes. I think it's always important to put the company ahead of oneself in terms of ego or personal gain. You know, it's important to celebrate success, play to strengths, have personal time, do what you love where possible, feel in the things that are really important, not about the things that don't really matter. And most importantly, keep up to date, whether that's by attending short programs, whether it's through networking, whether it's through reading, all of these things are really quite important. Keep fresh and keep alive, you know, as the harder you work, the longer you live. For the benefit of our listeners, you, you have a, a voracious appetite for, for knowledge, for, for learning and um, politics. Uh, I know business developments generally well beyond your sector in other areas. So is that what you mean when you say be open to learning new things? It's just kind of staying a kind of open eared. I think I'm reminded here, I think it was Norman Lear who said, every man is my superior in that I may learn from him. Yeah. OK. Well, I mean, it's it's a good way to kind of have a thread running through all the different jobs and roles you have, isn't it? To, to kind of come in curious and, and open to these things. Um, can I talk to you a little bit about you've also had a, a very widespread career outside of the Pennies and Premark um, company. You've had directorships at Unpost, Arianta, the Labour Relations Commission, as I said. A lot of those are, are, are state bodies and boards. You obviously wanted to to give something back and return something into the, the governmental side of things. 
And you've also done some um, more commercial work with uh, C&C, obviously, and you've helped out on the business representative side with IBEC. And is there any one of those that you particularly enjoyed more than others or anything you learned? Or was there one that kind of sticks out from that particular uh, collection? It's very hard to single any particular organisation. I think in each organisation I was involved in, I gained from it, whether that be on a PLC or a private organisation. But one that's very close to my heart at the moment is going for growth programme, in which uh, I mentor young women who do this programme, which is headed up by Paula Fitzsimons. It's a programme sponsored by KPMG and Enterprise Ireland. And for a number of years now, I have a programme each year over seven months that has young women in their own business. They may have a business of a couple of million. And we have we come together seven at least seven times a year. And we have a very specific programme in terms of what we follow in so far as our plan for six months, 12 months, three years, doing our annual, doing deep, doing dives, doing deep dives and learning from each other. And and then where it's necessary to having inputs from outside, whether that might be about scaling up or it might might be about the uh, people and culture. Now, that's one that gives me enormous pleasure because I see this young women who are, who are young mothers mainly who are who've had the courage to go into their own business uh, and some who, you know, that we would household names that are very successful. So that's one that I particularly mentioned because it's very topical. But I have to say each business that I've been associated with has its own excitement, I suppose, had its own engagement for me and own experience. And I mentioned in my introduction to this um, podcast and into yourself as well, just all the kind of issues that are out there at the moment. And, you know, if we recorded this podcast six months from now, there'd be a whole set of other issues. So, so time does not stand still in this area. But have you been surprised at all the things that are going on, particularly in the UK with petrol shortages? There seems to be a real battle to secure staff across the whole retail sector. And it, it seems to be most acute almost at the local level, you, you can see the advertisements in virtually every shop window that you walk by. I mean, do you think that's just a one-off relating to the pandemic or do you think there there's sort of deeper forces um, happening there that we need to pay uh, closer attention to? I'm sure there's some of it relating to the pandemic. That's one. Two, I think, you know, employers, and this will have come from the pandemic as well as among other things, will have to ensure that you know, they're awarding employees and I don't know. It's just not about pay. It's about engagement. It's about capacity for growth. It's about um, attention to training and to development. It's about caring for them. It's about empathy. And then when you talk about, you know, technology, if you talk about the pandemic, we have a new norm. You know, we've had remote working. Um which came upon us very fast pace. So trust, trust between employers and employees is hugely important. New technologies, new roles, this requires upskilling. It requires reskilling. It requires, you know, different mindsets. It requires different behaviors. I, I meant the well-being. I mentioned that again because well-being is not just about the words itself. It's about concern for the mental you know, for the social, for the physical, for the financial. It's okay not to be okay. So COVID has been, you know, set the pace and scale of change. 
So many men, there will be many new roles, I believe, and they will require focus and empathy. We've also got to be concerned to ensure that, you know, that we, we care for people who have fear and uncertainty. And the whole question of the digital digitalization between the employer and the employee relationships. So I don't believe that the Irish situation is quite as dramatic as the UK situation. And I'm going to get more of this, more of this and on. It's going to be fascinating to see where you go next, Breach. Good luck with all your, your various roles and jobs. And, and you've given our own listeners some learnings here because you have the experience, you have the the, the mileage behind you to, to say some of the things you're saying. And they're very interesting indeed. I'm glad you finally got your shoes back from Arthur Ryan and went onward and upward from there. <laughs> and otherwise you mightn't be talking to us at all today. So well done. Uh, many happy years ahead uh, in your jobs and various roles. And thank you for joining us on Business Impact today. Thank you, Emmett.